As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, freaks. Uh, we are actually in a hotel room right at this minute. I love how you say actually like it's never been done before. Guys, you wouldn't believe it. We're in a room in a hotel. We are in a room that we don't own. Shh. Or nor do we clean it up. Anyway, uh, we we just this is the first time we've had a chance to talk about the live show in Nashville. And we've had a couple of days to process everything. And I think that we can both agree that neither one of us have been able to process it. No, no, it's um, there was I, there. Uh, there's so much to cover and so much to share. And I there I there was so much. It was way too much. <laughs> <laughs> to even process. <laughs> so all kinds of weird stuff happened uh, while we were there. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, first of all, first of all, we went to um, this Vietnamese noodle place right across the way from Zany's. And I had, uh, I don't, is it pho or pho? Anyway, it was... It was a bowl full of goodness, and I put so much chili in it that I cleared my sinuses right out. It was glorious. I, it's it's one of my top five moments from Nashville. So what what Kat's saying is, if you want Vietnamese noodles, Nashville <laughs> is the hot spot for that. The folks at Zany's were so good to us. They were so sweet and um, really gentle with us um, because, you know, it's not something that we do all the time. And I think they were very understanding about that and uh, let us just walk around and feel chairs and <laughs> l- look at things um, so that we could feel a little more comfortable. And I really do appreciate that. And they wanted to know if we wanted to come back in the future. <laughs> it was such an exciting night. Thank you so much for everything. And then as we were flying out of the Knoxville airport a couple of days later, uh, we were sitting there in the terminal waiting for our flight and somebody tapped us on the shoulder and said, hey, I was at the show the other night and I just wanted to say hi. And we were like, we know you brought us presents. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we remember you. Um, that's another thing that surprised the 
fuck right out of me. So many people brought us so many beautiful things and I don't even know what to say about it. We had to get an extra piece of luggage to bring it home. It's uh, amazing. And I've eaten things I've never eaten before. I've drank things I've never drank before. I mean, I, I did some I did some drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, I'm currently donning a Lion to the Dying t-shirt. What? Made by one of our freak family members. So great. Thank you so much. We just had such a wonderful time, and we look forward to maybe uh, doing another show sometime in the not-too-distant future. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. Yeah. uh, Why don't you just go ahead and take it from here? I do want to say, first off, um, I do apologize. I am currently dealing with some congestion. My nose has been bleeding a lot. Uh, There's been a weird combination of trying to not sound stuffy and also trying to keep my bodily fluids inside of right. me. She has a nose tampon. It's um, It's been tough. But um, I got the flu shot and I think my body's just trying to like bulk up its immune system Maybe. or something. Maybe. So I've just been real stuffy. I'm not sick sick. I think I'm just... You sound sick. I know. But I'm you, so sorry. But you, but you aren't sick is what you're saying. I'm sorry. No, I just sound no. like butt. You don't sound like butt. I sound like butt. Well, maybe a little okay. butt like. You sound butt like. Thank you. Okay. Like butt light? <laughs> Make mine a butt light. <laughs> I'm sorry. We've <clears throat> gotten terribly said, I'm sorry terribly, about eight times. Terribly off track. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nine, nine. Nine times. Nine. Translated as the disorder of fear, Taijin Kaifusho, or TKS, is a very specific form of social phobia. Um, It's like an anxiety disorder, but it is specific only to Japanese culture. Interesting. I thought so. Taijin Kyofusho is commonly described as a form of social anxiety. And from here on out, I'm just going to call it TKS. I love that idea. Thank you. So TKS is a social phobia. Um, It has to do with a person dreading and avoiding social contact. Okay, we get that. And it's a subtype of anxiety disorder. Okay, we're totally familiar with that. However, instead of a fear of embarrassing themselves or being harshly judged by others because of their social ineptness, sufferers of TKS report a fear of offending or harming other people by being who they are. Okay. The focus is... So it's like a double whammy. It is. It is. It's um, The focus is on avoiding harm to others rather than avoiding... Embarrassment. Embarrassment to yourself. Gotcha. So like so much of it, like for instance, we've talked about my um, social anxieties and, and so much of mine stems from um, being perceived as stupid or not belonging, um, not being as good as maybe people thought I initially I was. The imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome. Um, And in this case, the social anxiety has to do with the uncomfortable feelings that you might create in the other person because of who you are. Okay, so I'm a terrible person. Right. And I have no social skills. Mm -hmm. And because of that, 
I feel as though maybe I might be embarrassing others. Exactly. And so that makes me even worse. Yeah. And then it just feeds on itself. Yeah. And this is primarily Japanese? It's just, it's it's so based because the, we're going to get into Okay. It. So the symptoms of the disorder include avoiding social outings and activities, rapid heartbeat, shortness of breath, panic attacks, trembling, uh, feelings of dread and panic when people are around, mm-hmm. which we, we all, you know, I understand those feelings. You understand those feelings. Yep. But the causes of the disorder um, can stem from emotional trauma or a psychological defense mechanism. It's much more common in men than it is in women, which is unlike most anxiety disorders, which are much more prevalent in women. In Western culture. Correct. Okay. The crucial difference between TKS and social phobia is subtle. Uh, People with social phobia are afraid of experiencing embarrassment in front of others, while the Japanese people with TKS are afraid of embarrassing others by being in their presence. Okay, this is really interesting because clearly it's a cultural thing. Right. Yes, exactly. With cultural expectations, the basis of social phobia um, is on the sufferer's individual reactions. So um, the Japanese culture is so focused on etiquette, on being polite, on making sure those around you are comfortable and you're not putting them out in any way, um, that the, the fear comes from that intense need to make sure that that others aren't made uncomfortable. Gotcha. So the illness varies in types and severity. In the official Japanese diagnostic system, uh, TKS is subdivided into the following categories. These all have Japanese names. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, I'm going to skip over the Japanese names, not because I don't respect that they have their own names and that be, you it, just don't I'm want just, to. I don't want to butcher it. Yeah, you're suffering from <laughs> TKS. I'm a little I'm worried that I'm going to upset. The, okay. Uh, okay, it is TKS, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So there's the phobia of blushing. Wow. If you blush in front of someone you might make them uncomfortable because they might feel like they've made you blush okay okay, so it's like it it feeds off of not just the expectations but the the feelings that come from those expectations and the is all right well let me ask you this how does that affect the makeup industry in japan because normally one of the things that people seem to like to do is to add some color to their face correct blush sure all right so how does that affect is that a bad thing over there someone wearing blush and someone blushing looks very different okay i'm an idiot go ahead no (laughs) (laughs) another type is the phobia of a deformed body similar to body dysmorphic disorder which Uh, Body dysmorphic disorder doesn't have really anything to do with the way that your body looks. It's the way that you think your body looks. So that's what, you know, eating disorders play into that so much. Um, The phobia of eye contact, which, you know, I totally understand. Um, That's 
part of my issue. And I, uh, especially like during job interviews or when I'm first meeting somebody, I obsess about how much I'm actually looking at their eyes because I know I'm supposed to, but I don't want to. And so mm. then I end up looking at their eyes and then fearing that I'm looking too much at their eyes. And then they yeah. are looking at me like, why are you looking at me like again, that? And again, I'm, you have TKS. <laughs> <laughs> you totally do. It's an official diagnosis. <laughs> also, the fear of having foul body odor, which, you know, since I've been stuffed up, we've talked about a couple <laughs> yes. times. Yeah. I have such an insane fear when I can't smell. I worry so much that I'm not smelling that I'm smelling. Right. Or that something in the air is going to kill me and I'm not going to be able to smell it first. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I like to mess with her a little bit when she's stuffed up. I'll, I'll just all of a sudden go. What the hell is that smell? It's, it's oh nice. My God, it makes me feel good. <laughs> smells like somebody left garbage out in the sun for days. Japan psychology also recognizes additional types of TKS based on severity. So there's transient, which uh, that type is short-lived. It's moderately severe. It appears most often in teens, but may occur at any time. So it's a brief period in your life where you become a little obsessed with how you appear to other people. Right. Totally makes sense. Uh, delusional. This is the most common type of TKS. It's the most similar to social phobia. It is chronic often begins before the age of 30, and it varies in severity from moderate to severe. And then there's phobic with schizophrenia, and this is more complicated. In such cases, rather than a phobia, TKS is a manifestation of schizophrenic symptoms. No kidding. And one of the things that we touched briefly upon before is that um, this disorder can be caused by um, a traumatic life experience or um, something like that. Whereas, you know, social anxiety most often isn't caused by having, you know, a, a bad experience with an uncle who said you smelled bad. Right. A triggering event. Right. In reading about uh, the body odor form of TKS, um, I also discovered that there is something called olfactory reference syndrome or ORS. It's a psychiatric condition in which there is a persistent false belief and intense preoccupation with the idea that you are emitting abnormal body odors. Really? It's a whole different wow. syndrome. Is it similar to the condition that uh, we associate with bulimia where you think... Like a dysmorphic? A dysmorphic type of thing where you just, you're, you're convinced that you, you, you're you admitting noxious odors? It's It seems similar. I don't know about the, the actual psychology okay. of it, but in reading about it, it seems like it's a very similar idea. Like, regardless of what the mirror shows you and regardless of what people say about you... Right you still believe that this thing is true. Interesting. People with ORS often misinterpret other people's behaviors like sniffing or opening a window or um, touching their nose as being a reference to them smelling bad. So people could be completely not even acknowledging that you're in the room, but if they open a window, that means that it's because you smell bad. Oh, man. What an awful way to live. Wouldn't that be tremendously upsetting? Oh like God. every day of your life. And so when, how do you, how can you ever feel comfortable? Never. You can't. No. I mean, if you 
care about what other people think. That's true, I guess. And and some people just don't. They, that's true. Um, that disorder is often accompanied by, in you know, an insane amount of shame, embarrassment, significant distress, avoidance behavior. Of course, mm-hmm. it comes with social phobia and social isolation. Isolation. And why wouldn't you, if you are constantly concerned that you are you know, smelling bad, right. why wouldn't you try to isolate yourself? The difference between uh, ORS and TKS uh, related to body odors is that with ORS, you are concerned about your embarrassment about smelling bad. With TKS, you're concerned that you're upsetting those people you're because a, you smell bad. You're offending them. You don't care that you're bearing the shame. Right. The shame is that you're in creating. How, yeah. Yes. Interesting. Isn't it? So in the Western world, clinicians don't recognize TKS as a separate disorder, and they usually treat it the same way as social phobia, even though it's so in, enmeshed with the culture of the Japanese. You're rubbing your nose. Do I smell bad? I'm just so stuffed up. <laughs> My poor <laughs> so sweet girl. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Japanese clinicians frequently use Morita therapy, which was developed in the 1910s. Traditional Morita therapy is a highly regimented progression that helps the patient learn to accept and redirect their thoughts. Stage one is bed rest in total isolation, which... Um, that seems counterintuitive. I know. I know. I thought that let's, was Let's put you alone with your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last thing I need. <clears throat> Stages two and three focus on work, and only stage four includes what Westerners think of as therapeutic techniques such as talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Today, Japanese clinicians modify Morita therapy for outpatient or group settings, but the basic principles remain the same. And like Western psychiatrists, Japanese doctors sometimes prescribe medication as an adjunct to therapy. So um, they're kind of melding the way that we deal with things in order to best treat um, their patients, which I think is the best thing. You know, you That's learn great. from other cultures sure. and, yep. and everyone works together for the best of the people who are dealing with their 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 stinky fears. I think all fears are stinky. I would agree with that. Really? That is amazing. I had never thought about that particular type of situation where it's not really the embarrassment of being a certain way. It's the shame that you're embarrassing other people because of perceived conditions that one has. And you and I have talked about um, our, um, the the guilt spirals before. Yes. You know, you feel something and then you feel guilty for feeling that thing. Mm -hmm. And then you feel guilty for being preoccupied with your guilt about that thing. And then it becomes a la la la. It's It's like like this self-perpetuating yuck tornado. And, um, (laughs) And it's the same with this is, you know, you've in addition to feeling this stress related to how you're making this other person feel, if you like, let's say you suffer from this and you have a loved one because it's not just coworkers and, uh, you know, whatever that you interact with. There are people in your life, direct contact every day. And if they're constantly having to reassure you that you don't smell bad, Mm. That's going to get exhausting. Sure. And you're going to start feeling guilty for making them reassure you that you don't smell bad. Yeah. And maybe they're just lying to you because they don't want you to feel bad about smelling bad. 
And, you know, there's just layer upon layer upon layer. How many times a day do you and I tell each other, our brains are stupid? <laughs> so many times a day. Because we we struggle with that kind of thing. Right. Not, not to that extreme, but enough so that we're, we're very sympathetic yeah. and we get it. And, you know, I think a great example was last night. I was watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine um, and you were reading and... I was enjoying an episode about Captain Holt going to a barrel making museum <laughs> and I was laughing and just fully immersed in the show and then all of a sudden all of a sudden my brain said probably you're the worst and no one wants to hang out with you. <laughs> why, I, why do our brains do why this? Would it do that like at that very specific moment it's, like you know what here's my theory and we discussed this a yeah. little bit last night it, and it's a great one please go well you were having a good time mm -hmm. you were enjoying yourself you were um immersed in the entertainment and some little part of you and and i know this because i do the same thing some little part in you says you don't deserve to be happy because you're probably the worst and no one wants to hang around with you <laughs> Brains are stupid. Don't <laughs> don't so don't believe your brain. No, no. And especially if you know that you deal with um let's say anxiety or depression, you know, depression especially lies. Yeah. And will tell you things that are not true and will try to convince you of things. Your own brain will try to work against you in the dirtiest ways and it lies. You're doing fine. I'll tell you something that helps me when, when my brain starts lying to me about things. And, and I didn't invent this technique. I read it somewhere. I visualize a giant on-off switch on the wall. And I just say, to the thought, not helpful. And I turn it off. I visualize turning the switch off. Yeah. Yeah, not useful, not helpful. Plink. Then I start worrying if I was too aggressive with the switch. <laughs> and maybe I'd hurt the switch's feelings. But that's just part of it. Um, I picture the, so you know the, where you water skied that time in Arizona. Yes, uh, Roosevelt Lake. Okay, so I picture like the um, the river between the, the two tall. Canyon walls? Canyon walls, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a river and then it forks. So I try to picture m like a little, me in a little kayak or a little canoe yep. and um so i'm at the fork and if i'm having a, a shit feeling or a, or a garbage thought um i try to change the i try to go down the fork like the other side the of other it one. like yeah. i could continue on this path but i'm gonna go on this fork instead and then you know there's a picnic that way <laughs> yeah there's, right. there's food down here right and there's this is th there are th bears and the other they're right. gonna eat you the, so the other path Garbage thoughts. Right. And I this don't want path, the bears. Picnic. I don't want the bears to eat me because I don't have the best diet and I might make the bears sick. That's right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's yeah. that. That thing on the side? No. It's that thing in the middle. For a thing in the middle, uh, we thought today it would be appropriate to maybe play that Richard Cheese song that he uh, he did for us for the live show. Our intermission song, aka uh, do, wait, does it have a song, a name? A, it doesn't really have a title. 
It's the intermission song by Richard Cheese. Thanks for listening to the Box of Oddities. Now it's time for intermission, so won't you please stretch your legs and have a smoke, buy some snacks and drinks, or use the toilets and wash your hands in those bathroom sinks. However, if you're not attending the live show right now, this doesn't apply to you and you can pee wherever we don't care what or how. But nonetheless, the larger point I'm making is just this. It's intermission and we'll be back as soon as everyone takes a piss. Piss! The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. The podcast world is growing bigger every day, and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future faves. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya has got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's Tip Jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and we're adding cool new features every day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya. That's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y. And don't forget to follow the Box of Oddities once you're there. This is a test of the Box of Oddities emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Had this been an actual Box of Oddities, I'd be talking a lot faster. I got an email from Carol in Seattle, Washington, who had, uh, she's catching up on episodes. And I had made an aside during a previous episode. I think I was talking about deathbed visions. And I and I told you the story about the woman who, uh, during surgery, left her body and went up through the ceiling and was above the hospital oh yeah she saw the shoe saw a shoe on the uh on the on the uh, ledge right and then she went upstairs and planted a shoe so that yeah that's what you say um (laughs) see and and she woke up and she said that this had happened to her and nobody of course believed her that she had an out-of-body experience uh, and her husband went up and found the shoe. And, and I thought at the time it was like, a, I think I said it was a, a Converse sneaker or something. Anyway, this woman wanted some more information. And I had read that years before. So I, I did a little research and I, uh, I found the official story. Um, a social worker, her name was Kim Clark said she had a patient named Maria who who died on the operating table. She had a cardiac arrest. Uh, she was revived during the period of her quote death Uh, She claims that she floated out of her body above the hospital and took a look down and could see the objects on the roof. And what she saw was it was not a sneaker. It was actually a blue shoe sitting on the uh, window ledge of the top floor. Uh, And she'd never been on the top floor. It was a it was a blue suede shoe. Oh, my. Had Elvis Uh, been there? I don't know. Maybe the ghost of Elvis was up there. Um that would mean he was dead. So what in fact happened was Kim Clark, the social worker, was the one that went up. I, I think I had said it was her husband. Sure. It was actually Kim Clark who went up to investigate. And she was just shocked that uh, she saw this blue suede shoe in the precise location that Maria had claimed it would be. Yeah. So I thought I'd explore out-of-body experiences a little bit more. And when you talk about out-of-body experiences, I think most people immediately think of uh, near-death experiences. Sure. And those are really two different things. Now, yes, 
uh, near death experience is an out of body experience, but there are other out of body experiences that don't have to do with uh, your heart stopping on an operating table. Right. It's kind of like a square is always a rectangle, but a rectangle is not always a square. Geometrically speaking, you are correct. But an out-of-body experience is just the sensation of floating outside of the body during moments of, uh, of high stress. And of course, dying can be stressful, so you get that a lot. Pilots, in particular, are susceptible to this phenomenon. Really? In, in a, a very notable example, according to Ranker, happened with, uh, well, probably the most famous pilot of all time, Charles Lindbergh. You know, the only reason I know as much as I do about Charles Lindbergh is because his baby was stolen. Yeah, and that's a whole other box of oddities there, that that whole... Yeah, that, that's a nuts story. That's but a nutty story. It, um, I feel a little embarrassed that that's why I know who he is. Because of the Lindbergh baby abduction. Yeah. Well, in, in 1927, he made the first ever flight across the Atlantic in his plane, The Spirit of St. Louis, which, by the way, we have seen at the Smithsonian, which is pretty cool. Super cool. So he's making this, you know, his historic transatlantic flight in the spirit of St. Louis, which was pretty much a flying gas tank. Sure. You know, there was no space for anything except him and tanks of gasoline and a ham sandwich. That's all he brought was a ham sandwich. But to quote Lucky Lindy, this is what he experienced. Quote, I existed and this was, this was after hours and hours of flying. He's way out in the middle of the Atlantic at this point. He said, quote, I existed independently of time and matter. I felt myself departing from my body as I imagine a spirit would leave, emanating into the cockpit, extending through the fuselage as though no frame of fabric walls were there, angling upward, outward, until I reformed in an awareness far distant from the human form I left in the fast-flying transatlantic plane. But I remained connected to my body through a long extended strand, a strand so tenuous that it could have been severed by a breath. Many other pilots have described out-of-body experiences or OBE since we're all, you know, Abbreviating, abbreviating like crazy OBE experiences floating uh, including floating outside the <laughs> cockpit OBE experiences that's like ATM machine <laughs> I love you thank you even if you say ATM machine <laughs> so he had like a cloud umbilical cord kind of yeah well you hear that a lot without a body experiences a silvery strand that connects them to the body. Oftentimes it's connected to the head. Uh, many times I've read experiences where it's connected to the solar plexus, like the middle of your chest. Sure. But as far as lucky Lindy goes, many other pilots have described uh, out-of-body experiences, including floating outside the cockpit and pounding on the windshield to get back inside the plane. That's bizarre. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Now, is that the same as remote viewing? Is an out-of-body experience the same as remote viewing, or is it different? No, I think it's very similar. Uh, the theory of remote viewing is the ability for the remote viewer to remove themselves from their body, travel to a certain area, and observe things, and then 
report back what they've seen. And that was a legitimate government experiment. And I think it was uh, 40s and 50s in through there. About the same time we were dosing people with LSD and not telling them. We're trying all kinds of stuff. American ingenuity. In the shittiest way possible. In uh, Raymond Moody's classic book, Life After Death. I read that. I'll add it to our Goodreads page. Yeah, that's a good one. An elderly woman had been uh, blind since childhood. And she was being treated by a colleague of uh, Dr. Moody. During the routine operation, she suddenly had a massive heart attack and died briefly. Mm. During her NDE episode, the uh, woman somehow regained her sight as she was floating above the operating table. Uh, Once she came to, uh, she was able to accurately describe the instruments and the techniques used during the resuscitation of her body. She even described who came in and out of the operating room and in what order. Oh, wow. And she was able to describe the clothes that they were wearing. Even though she was blind. Even though she was blind. That's so cool. That's pretty compelling. And I read uh, Dr. Moody's books, or some of them. Um, really, I started reading them when I was a kid. And and my mom had them lying around the house. And I picked them up and started reading. And, it, and, in, and in a way, it kind of got me going down this trail in my life. The interest of, hey, there's something else out there that we don't understand. Another book or a series of books that I read was by Danian Brinkley. He had a a near-death experience and actually had visions of the future. He was struck by lightning. He was on the telephone. This was in 1975. Uh, The telephone line was struck by lightning and it killed him, at least temporarily. He was told during his experience by a voice that, quote, an actor will become president whose initials are RR, and he will project the image of being a cowboy to the rest of the world. And Danian Brinkley in 1975 wrote that he thought he was predicting that it was Robert Redford. Actually, turned out to be Ronald Reagan, and he had had this experience five years before Reagan was, uh, was elected. I'm just trying to picture Robert Redford as president. That would have been cool. Yeah. He was also told about a nuclear explosion of a massive cement structure near a river in Russia. Mm. Uh, Hundreds of people would die. The disaster had something to do with the word wormwood. Uh, Many years later, I think it was, what was it, 85? The Chernobyl accident occurred, just as Danian Brinkley had said in 1975. And in Russian, Chernobyl literally means wormwood. Oh, wow. He was also told that in 1990, a great desert war would be fought. And of course, the U.S. military operation called Desert Storm occurred in 1990, where the U.S. Army battled the Iraqi army for occupying Kuwait. Now, I imagine that that's that's not a good feeling to know about these things, especially, you know, I mean, maybe not the Ronald Reagan thing, but like the the tragedies, especially you, um, there's a feeling like if you knew about it and you didn't or couldn't do anything about it, yeah. There's that's got to feel horrible. When I was much younger, I had a friend who had, um, he claimed that he would dream things and they would come true. Mm. And he gave me some examples of things that had happened. And I thought, well, yeah, sure, you can say that you dream. But he came in to work one day and he said, I had a dream last night that the space shuttle was going to explode. <gasps> And it didn't happen right away. It was about 18 months later, and the Challenger explosion happened. Oh, wow. Could that be, you know, I mean, it could be a coincidence. There, but... there are also um, tin cans 
forced into the air by explosions. So I don't think it, that that yeah. imagining that one of them could have uh, yeah. some sort of malfunction is way off base. No, no. But it was weird. Oh, for sure. Um, well, you remember the um, the premonition I had um, when you went down to visit your sister in Florida that time. That was weird. What was that premonition? You don't remember? Refresh my memory. I had a dream that you and your sister were sitting on a brown couch talking about my engagement ring. Oh, that's right. And we were. And I called you the next day and I was like, I had the weirdest dream last night. And you're like, oh, that's so weird. <laughs> yeah, and that's then right. months later, you proposed to me and I found out that you and your sister had been sitting yeah. in her living room on a brown couch talking about my engagement ring. Yeah, because um, I gave you my grandmother's engagement ring. Yeah. Well, in a roundabout way. My grandmother had left it to my sister. And my sister gave it to me to give to you. I have a pretty awesome family. It's true. But the point was I had a premonitory dream. Yes. <laughs> yes, you did. A respected physician named Dr. Diane Morrissey has a very well documented o- OBE. Um, she accidentally electrocuted herself Ooh. in the living room. She described it uh, this way. Quote, my body was thrown backward and to one side by the current. My body crashed to the floor thrown with such force that my head went right through the drywall oh my God. about a foot above the floor. She then said that she found herself briefly in a pool of blackness, but then returned to her living room in what she said was, quote, a new body that was transparent. She then said that she looked down and she saw a silver cord coming out of her spirit body and it was attached to the back of her physical head. As soon as she saw this, it was like a, a, a jolt went through her and she was thrust back into her physical body and she regained consciousness. Uh, and of course, she says that that experience changed her from being a skeptic to a leading advocate of OBE research. Wow. This is one of those things that I think, um, because I tend to be a little more skeptical about a lot of things, um, this is something, because we know so little about what makes us us mm-hmm. you know the soul etc cetera, etc cetera. i think this is something that i am very open to because i have no understanding of how that works where it comes from where it goes it's harder to be skeptical about something when you know you know so little about it, it there's no way f- that i can say well that doesn't make any sense because i have nothing to show that it doesn't make any sense you're right though i mean it, you can't just dismiss something that makes you uncomfortable that makes a, you, know, you hear something like this and you go oh well i don't like that idea i'm just going to dismiss it you can't on the other hand you can't say well that's absolute proof you can't say that either it's interesting and it certainly deserves further research and of course i tend to you know think well yeah that's real yeah. because that's who i am and even science says energy cannot be destroyed. It just changes forms. And that's kind of where I go with it. But it is scientifically provable that our perception of the world changes when we're under great stress. You've heard the uh, the saying, when I thought I was going to die, life, my life flashed before my eyes sure. or, or time seems to slow down. You were in a car accident. Did yeah. did things seem to slow down for you right as you were getting ready to 
have the accident? Um, well, uh, yeah, in, in one of them, yes. In um, One of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was in high school, I was in a car accident. I was not driving. I was in the passenger seat. And I do remember that um, from the moment that I saw that there was a car coming at us and I recognized that the driver of the vehicle, of my vehicle, didn't notice it. And I was trying to alert him that there was a car coming. And that period of time probably was only like three seconds, but it does seem like it was much longer. Like like I was pleading with him to acknowledge that we were going to be hit by this car. Right, right. But it didn't matter. Be- and really, it's because probably to him, he just heard me screeching and was like, what the hell? Yeah. And then all of a sudden we were hit by this car. So, yeah, no, Absolutely. Well, it, it is a very common experience. I know that when I've been in stressful situations like that, it almost seems like I have an overabundance of time to react. Right. Things seem to just slow down. It's been scientifically proven that this is the case. The experiment happened a number of years ago where they, uh, they had some subjects in a bungee cord. Mm-hmm. And they had a little digital readout mechanism that was able to um, flash two different numbers in a random series. And so they looked at it and it was flashing so fast they couldn't really see what the sequence of numbers were. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. While I they're see stand- where you're going. Standing on so the they're, ground. They're looking at these numbers that are flashing and when they're standing on the ground, they're not able to determine what those numbers are because right. they're flashing so quickly. Right, right. Then they went up to the bungee tower and jumped off and they had it attached to their wrist. Uh-huh. And They had 20 different people do it, and 19 of them were able to keep their eyes open. And what they discovered was it wasn't like 100%, you know, um, accuracy. But what they discovered was that over those 19 jumps, people were able to accurately tell what the sequence of numbers was by an increase of 36%. Wow. So when we are in stressful situations, our senses are heightened that yeah. makes sense yeah it, well it, we it, perceive it as time slowing down but what is in fact happening is our mind is speeding up yeah it makes sense because if we're in danger then our body's gonna gonna turn it up yep if, so to speak yep <laughs> fucking ready to go that makes sense so i think that all ties together you know the the out-of-body experiences and the way that uh, time seems to morph and change when we're under stress. I think it's fascinating. And that's what I have for you. (laughs) Well, you and I have talked about um, NDE experiences um, on multiple (laughs) occasions. And I think, you know, you're exactly right. It is is interesting. And I tend to fall more into the uh, camp that believes that our body has certain processes that it goes through um, and experiences that we feel or that we sense are from coming from within. And um, and you tend to, you know, see it as a different experience. But I think regardless, it's fascinating because either way, it's something that's happening. And we don't know. And we don't know. And that in and of itself Exactly. And if it is something about, you know, if if there is something leaving our bodies, that's um, that's incredible and interesting. And if it's something that 
you know, our body is creating because of the mechanisms inside of it. That is also fascinating. It's a win-win situation. Right? Anyway, we love hearing from you, our freak family. You can get a hold of us on all the major social media pages. Uh, also, our email address, curator at the box of Big shout out to Croatia. Oh, yeah. Um, we have had so much love and support from Croatia, and I can't even express to you how much that blows my mind because we're from Maine. Yeah, we were actually, what, like number... The number 32 podcast in Croatia (laughs) this week. And Greece, we were in the top 10, which is weird. That is. It is. I think, um, I hope that you're familiar with the show Jeopardy. Um, It is a a quiz show of questions and answers. And who are you talking to? I'm talking to our listeners. You're talking to our listeners in Croatia? Is that what you're doing? I'm just saying that maybe not everyone knows what Jeopardy is. Anyway, so Jeopardy. Um, anytime there's a question that relates to Maine, I freak out because Maine is such a like a, a pothole in like <laughs> the world. Uh-huh. And it's it's glorious and beautiful and perfect, but it's not, you know, the the most well known place and we we're not flashy, I guess. And so the idea that that's you know Croatia is listening to mm. us and that we've got people who listen in Greece that just blows my mind and the podcast seems to do really well in Australia we got a lot of Australia listeners and we oh my god we love our Aussie freaks first of all your birds I could talk about your birds all day long message me about your birds i want to hear stories of birds breaking into your homes i want to hear stories about (laughs) birds ruining your stuff i want to hear a bird attack stories i want to hear about your amazing aussie birds there you have it curator at the box of oddities.com man we got sidetracked there but um it this was i had so much fun today and thank you for sharing your story with me and that was a good time we look forward to seeing you our beautiful freak family next time until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2019 All rights reserved Hello everyone, it's here And I'm Gabby And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. 
Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.